This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Demrest, CPA with Parmels and Associates. So this is part three of three. This is the final course or the final piece of the crash course on what we look for, what to ask for, and how to set up a new location, right? So this is talking about for those of you that are looking to expand, going from one location to two, maybe you are already a multi-shop owner, and this is just kind of a good refresher course on some of the key areas that you're looking to hit on. And then lastly, you know, everyone's looking to sell their business or businesses at some point, and this might be a good way to look at this kind of from the other side of the deal. What would a prospective buyer be looking? What are their incentives on structuring this and allocating stuff and all that good stuff? So in the first episode, if you haven't listened to that already, go back and start from the first part of this one. It's going to make a lot more sense. But in the first part, we talked about what to look for, how to find a new location, some of the non-financial aspects of picking that desirable next location. And then last week, we got into, you know, kind of the meat and potatoes of this. How do we look at financials? What financials do we look for? What makes a business good or bad? And how do you come up with a fair value of the business? And then this last week, one that we're going to talk about this week is, all right, we've got a deal in place. We've agreed on a price. How do we set this thing up? How do we pay for it? And how do we make sure that this is allocated the best we possibly can to get the proper tax benefits out of it? Before we get into that, though, I'd like to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. I don't know about you, but I'd rather see a tech working under a hoist than roaming aimlessly around your shop. Shopware's streamlined digital communication makes it really easy for your team to work together and get approvals faster. Find out more at GetShopware.com. In today's world, managing the labor side of your business is more important than ever. Utilizing their industry-leading software, Labor Profit Management, RepairShop of Tomorrow can help shops maximize their profits by developing a specific plan for each client. Please visit them at RepairShopOfTomorrow.com. Now that we have a deal that we've agreed to upon price, what do we do next? Right? We've already looked for the shop. We've already figured out the location, the demographics. We've figured out the right fit for our next location. We've taken a look at the tax return. We've taken a look at the financials, and we feel that we've come to a fair agreement on price. Now, what do we do? Right, we got to really make this deal happen at this point, and this is where it starts to get serious. So the first thing we need to figure out before we go any farther is how are we going to pay for this? Right, They're not going to give you this. You're not going to get this for free in most situations. So how are we going to fund this deal? In order to fund this, we really have three different options here. The first option, and this is something that I almost never see, is pay cash for the deal, right? It's not really advisable to pay cash unless you're buying something extremely cheap. The only situation I can see paying cash for is, let's say that you have somewhere, the business is closed down, you're not buying no real estate, and maybe the landlord just wants someone in there. And he says, you know what, Hunt? Give me $20,000, that will buy the old equipment that's in there, and you're off to the races. That's a situation where I can see paying cash for, but if you have something like that, you're going to have to invest a decent amount of cash to get that thing up and running, right? We're going to have to get cash to do some marketing and advertising. We're going to need to get some cash or financing to rehab the equipment or possibly rehab the property. And right now, I am holding on to my cash, right? Cash is king. Cash pays the bills. And I want to maintain my cash position, especially in a situation where I'm going multi-location. 
go multi-location, everyone's going to be a little bit over their skis, but I don't want to get too aggressive there because if you get too aggressive on your cash and you're undercapitalized on this, it's going to make this an even more stressful process. Another thing too is, you know, debt is not the enemy. It's, you know, regardless of what you think about it, um, debt can be used in your advantage if you can set it up correctly. And right now, interest rates are pretty cheap. So if you have the option here, I'm always going to use the bank's money on this. And I'll give you an argument. Maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're a big Dave Ramsey fan, and you're saying, Hunt, I don't like to take on debt. I have a lot of reserves for this. What I would still advise is going out and getting a credit line, getting a loan from the bank. Just make sure that there's no prepayment penalty on there. All right, so follow me on this one. Let's say that you have $200,000 is what you need for this deal. You have $500,000 in your bank account, so you have plenty of money to finance this deal yourself. Even in that situation, I'm probably still going to go get a loan or get a line of credit. What I can do in that situation is I'm going to use the bank's money to fund this deal, and now I still have my $500,000. Let's assume that everything goes great. Nine months down the road, new location is up, running, profitable, cash flowing on it. Perfect. Things went exactly as I thought. I can then turn around, pay off that note, save the interest, and I'm done. However, let's go and kind of give you the other aspect of that deal and how these things could go wrong and why I like to finance that. So you go into this with $500,000, you pay cash for it, now we got $300,000. The first year is a little bit more costly than you thought. Right, Business is not making money, so you're injecting cash into it. Had to buy some more equipment, had to fix up the property a little bit more. Now you're down to $100,000 in cash. If you get down to that point, you can't then go back to the bank and say, hey, you know what? I just bought this new location. Can you give me a loan on it? They're not going to give you one. Right? Your equipment is not really worth that much. And if that has loans on it as well, then the bank's going to say, what collateral is there for us? You might be saying, well, Hunt, how is that any different than when I first buy the business? It is and it isn't, right? It isn't in the point of view of, no, this is exactly the same business, but a bank looks at it a bit differently. They are much more apt to give you money before you make this deal versus to essentially refinance this deal when you need to pull cash out or you get tight on this, right? So if you're on the fence about, do I have the money? Am I underfunded for this? Then you probably just answered your question and you need to finance this deal. Like I said, if you think that you maybe don't need it, just make sure that there's no prepayment penalties on that loan so that if you need to get out of it early, you can pay off the loan, save the interest, and move on with your day. Now let's go to the more common situation that we see here. The most common situation that we see is finance, right? Going to a bank, getting a loan. A lot of people ask me about this. Well, hon, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get a loan. If you have decent credit and your business is successful right now, and the business that you're buying is not a complete train wreck, you're going to be able to find a bank that's going to do these deals, right? So we're in a little bit of weird times, you know, finally, I think coming out of COVID and banks have been very leery about lending out money. However, banks have been fit very favorable from what I've seen to shops. The reason is when everyone else was shut down, shops were deemed essential service. And so it's not a huge risk from a COVID perspective. And so the banks like that. Another reason is generally shops have been pretty successful over the last couple of years and banks are looking to add them to their portfolio. And so these are deals that banks are willing to do. Now, when you're going to a bank, obviously you're comparing all the normal stuff, right? How long are you going to finance this for? What's your interest rate going to be? And then ultimately, how are you going to package this deal? So 
most people end up going SBA. So most people do not go conventional on this really for two reasons. So the first reason that most people do not go conventional on this is if you go conventional, you have to put 20% down. Meaning if you're getting a million dollar loan, they're going to want you to put down $200,000. And realistically, a lot of people just don't have that 20% or like I was mentioning before, would rather hang on to that cash and use the bank's money instead of their own money. So I've seen and I've heard about some SBA deals where you essentially have no money out of pocket. Most of these deals, though, they want to see you at least put 10% down on this. Then they finance it over a number of years. If you can get a bank to package this stuff together, you could get longer terms if there's real estate involved. But generally, real estate is going to be 20 years and the asset portion of it is going to be seven years. Uh, There might be some deals where you take this 25 or 30 on the real estate. On the asset side of it, it's not a whole lot of difference. Some banks may take it to uh, 10 years, but generally seven is pretty standard for the asset portion of this. We all have bad days when we just turn to someone and ask, how the heck do I fix this? When that happens to you on the business side, which may not be your strong suit, you want someone quick and you want them to be clear. That's exactly what Dan Groen from Detroit Garage found when he peppered the folks at Shopware with questions about how to make the most of its shop management system. As he puts it, they continually solve the curveballs that we throw at them. With seven shops, Dan jokes that he is a demanding client, but that is a sign of a guy committed to his business. Even better, the Shopware support team met every challenge with, in Dan's words, impressive capabilities and vigor. No complaints, no hassles, just a commitment to help Dan through his day. As Dan says, we make each other stronger. Now that's a partnership that works. It is time. Visit GetShopware.com. In today's world, managing the labor side of your business is more important than ever. Utilizing their industry-leading software, Labor Profit Management, Repair Shop of Tomorrow can help shops maximize their profits by developing a specific plan for each client. Do you know what your effective labor rate is? Do you know your technician's efficiency and productivity? Do you know how much profit dollars each technician is adding to the bottom line? If the answer is no, then this Napa Auto Care endorsed program from Repair Shop of Tomorrow is the program for you. Developed for shop owners by shop owners, this program will help you become more profitable on day one. Utilizing their unique labor management systems will allow you to work smarter, not harder. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. Now, why do banks want you to go SBA? Obviously, I talked about before, one of the positives of going to SBA is going to allow you to put less cash out of your pocket. But what is in the bank's favor on this? So the way that SBA works is you're not going directly to the SBA, you're going to your bank. And what the SBA is doing for your bank is they are guaranteeing their loan. And so let's say that I have a million dollar loan I'm going to get from my local bank. And they say, Hunt, we're going to put this through the SBA. What does that mean? That means that the SBA is going to guarantee the majority of that. So they're going to say, all right, Wells Fargo, you can give Hunt this money for the deal. We're going to guarantee eight hundred dollars or 900000 of this deal. What does that do for the bank? The bank then really likes this deal because now they have a ton of collateral in it. They're not as worried about me defaulting because if I do default, they know that the SBA is going to pick up the majority of this. Now, non-SBA deals where they get a little bit more risky is there's no outside collateral. 
And shops are generally something that the banks don't like to see unless they have SBA because shops don't have much collateral. You know, if you're going to buy a deal, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, a slim minority of the overall purchase price is really the hard assets as far as lifts, tire machines, and alignment racks. You're financing mostly blue sky here or goodwill. And goodwill means that there's no collateral on it. So the SBA is always very favorable to these and generally the way that we see most of these deals going. Now, what is the upside to the SBA or what is another upside versus a downside to a conventional? So the SBA is going to have a lot more favorable terms as far as cash flow and collateral. It's going to allow them to guarantee this. The downside is, is the SBA is going to usually be a higher interest rate. So if you're comparing two loans side by side, an SBA deal and a non-SBA deal, generally the non-SBA deal is going to be a lower interest rate. Think about it, guys. Interest rates have to do with risk. So take an example of a savings account. Savings accounts right now are paying virtually no interest, but then again, there's almost zero risk for a savings account. Wells Fargo is not going to lose my money in a savings account. I would hope so, right? On the other hand of things, you have something like an auto repair shop. You can make a lot of money on them, but they're very risky. And so banks are looking to get a higher return on investment to make up for that risk. Now, an SBA not only has the interest rates, but built in there, you have that SBA guarantee fee. Essentially, that SBA guarantee fee is kind of like mortgage insurance that you have for a property that you didn't put enough money down on. It's a way for you to pay into the SBA to guarantee that you're going to pay this. And the idea behind it is just like any other insurance, if we have 30 people that all pay into this SBA guarantee fee, we now have enough money that if one of them defaults, the program doesn't fold and we still have enough money on it. So between interest rate and SBA guarantee fees, an SBA deal is going to be a little bit more expensive than a conventional Still, it is one of the most popular options because of the little amount of cash or less amount of cash that you need to put out. So the last option here, and, you know, I would say it's a close second behind financing on how these deals are structured, is going to be an owner finance deal. So instead of going to a bank, instead of going through the full underwriting process and all that, maybe you have an owner here that's willing to hold on to the paper for you. Hey, instead of paying you $500,000 for your business and you just get a one-time payment, how about you hold the note for seven years, I'll give you 5% return on your money, and we just get this deal done. Now, one of the beauties of owner financing is it's a lot easier to get done. If I come to an agreement with a prospective seller of their shop, we agree on the price, he says, hey, I'll hold it for seven years at 5% interest, we shake hands, theoretically, I could be in business tomorrow. We're good to go. I don't need to worry about underwriting. I don't need to worry about any sort of title work. We're just in the door and we're done. So the ease of use, the quickness of this is a huge advantage. Another thing from the seller's point of view is the sellers can actually get some favorable tax treatment. And so we won't get into all the nitty gritty details of this, but essentially the seller is going to have more favorable taxes by spreading this deal out over a number of years. So if that same deal I was talking about, if he got all of his money in a form of, you know, I went out and got a bank loan, then he has $500,000 of income that he has to pay tax on in one year. That's going to raise him to higher tax brackets and give him a pretty large tax burden. However, if that same $500,000 was to stretch out over seven years, he's getting a little bit of that for the next seven years. 
It's going to decrease the amount of taxes he has to pay on it. Also going to give him, you know, whatever the interest rate is, a return on his money and spread that out over a number of years. If the person is willing to do this, then great. From a buyer's perspective, I don't really care. If the owner is willing to do this and its rate is better than a bank, I'm going to probably do this just because it's easier. I don't want to deal with the headache. Now, if you're the seller of this, you've got to be really careful because do you want to step back in and, and own your shop again? Right. This is why this is not the most common thing to see, because a lot of people say, you know what, if I'm selling this business, I don't want to look in a rearview mirror. I want to be done with it. But if you maybe your personal credit's not great, maybe you're not in the most bankable position on it. You can still get a deal, but you're going to probably have to look for a deal that has an owner finance aspect to it. And if they haven't talked about owner finance, maybe bring it up. You know, if you're trying to avoid some of the bank fees, some of the bank headaches of this and it doesn't have real estate involved on it, then I'll probably talk to the owner about financing. Now, you can do an owner-held financing for the real estate as well, but generally that real estate has to be paid off. And in most situations, that real estate is not going to be paid off. It's going to have a mortgage on it. If it has a mortgage on it, he's not able to sell that without first satisfying that mortgage. So now that we've got the financing taken care of, and for argument's sake, I'm going to go get an SBA loan for this. How should I set up this shop? How should this deal be structured? So first and foremost, I want to talk about the asset sale versus a stock sale. 99.9% of sales that I see for shops are asset sales. But Hunt, what's the difference between an asset sale and a stock sale? So an asset sale means just that. I am buying the assets of the business. Now, that doesn't mean it's all tangible assets like equipment, tire machines, racks, and stuff like that. It's also intangible assets like goodwill, customer list, websites, reputation, assembled workforce. I'm essentially taking over that entire business, but I'm going to not use their existing entity. On the other hand, we have what's called a stock sale. And a stock sale is just that. I am buying the stock of the business. So let me compare those two deals for you. I'm going to go out. I'm going to buy this new location for $500,000. The first option I have is I can go and I can do an asset sale. And I can go and say, all right, Mr. Smith, I'm going to buy your shop. I'm going to buy all of your equipment. I'm going to buy all of your uh, customer lists. I'm going to buy your reputation. I'm going to essentially take over your business operations, but I'm going to set it up in my own LLC. I'm not going to take over your LLC. That means that I don't get any of his bank accounts, right? That's in his business, not mine. I'm not buying his bank accounts. That also means that I'm not assuming any of his liabilities or his tax numbers. I'm just going in there and I'm taking over under my own operating entity. On the other side of things, if I want to do a stock sale, essentially I go in and I operate it just like he would. I keep his same bank accounts. I keep his federal ID number. I keep his state uh, state tax withholding numbers. Everything remains the same. What's the big difference between these though, Hunt? So first and foremost, it's going to be taxation. And the second one is going to be liability on it. So taxation on it. So if you buy an asset sale, you have two different types of deductions. We have assets, which we can depreciate. And then we have goodwill, which we can amortize. Essentially, if that $500,000 deal, I'm going to be able to write all that stuff off, some of it in the first year and the last bit of it over a course of 15 years. On the other hand of things, if we have a stock sale, 
That $500,000 that I pay for the business, I do not get a deduction for. So just like if you go out and you buy a stock right now, if you buy $500,000 worth of Apple, you do not get a tax deduction for that. However, when I go and five years from now, I sell that Apple stock, I can, I can offset whatever gain by whatever I purchased that original stock for. It's the same exact thing with a closely held business like a shop. Whatever you pay for that stock is now your basis in it. You do not get to deduct that until you sell that down the road. And if you're sitting here and you're in your 30s or 40s, then that deduction might be 20 to 30 years down the road. That's one of the big reasons why we don't see a stock sale. The second one, and arguably a little bit more important on this, is if I buy the stock of a company, I'm assuming all of their assets, all of their liabilities, including taxes. So let's say I go and I buy the stock of a business. One month after I open this business, they come in and knock on my door and they say, Hunt, we're here to do a sales tax audit. They're auditing the previous three years, which would be under the prior ownership, and they come up and now I owe $125,000 in sales tax. That's now my problem. I bought the stock of his business, even though that was the old owner was doing that. Now my name is on it and I'm responsible. Let's say that you have a previously disgruntled employee. You know, the old owner was doing some weird stuff with payroll and they now decide to sue the business. Again, it's now my business, not the old owner. So these contingent liabilities, whether it's tax, employment, or anything else, are a really big thing to think about. And like I said, one of the big reasons why we almost never see a stock sale. So if there's a situation where you think you're going to do a stock sale, please check on it. There's almost never a situation where that makes sense. This should always, always, always be an asset sale. Now that we have an asset sale, how do we set this stuff up? Now, if there's real estate in this deal, the real estate should be held in a separate entity. We're doing that for legal protection. So if I have my operating entity set up in Hunt's Auto Repair LLC, and then I have the real estate set up in Hunt's Real Estate LLC, I'm not really getting a tax benefit from it because any rent that I pay is going to be expense on a business income to my real estate LLC. But what I'm doing there is I'm separating my legal liability. If someone slips and falls in my parking lot, they can sue my real estate LLC, but they can't sue the shop because it was owned by a separate entity on this. Now, if you're going to buy a second, third, fourth, fifth location, and you already have an existing real estate entity, then you can use that one and buy multiple properties in it. Now, the next part we're going to talk about is, is the operating entity, but it's a very similar situation. You really have two choices here if you already have an existing rental LLC. You can create a new one or you can use your existing one. Obviously, you're going to get arguably maybe a little bit more legal protection by setting up a new LLC, but there's also going to be additional cost. You're going to have to file another tax return. You're going to have to have a separate set of financials. You're going to have to have some other services that you could commingle if they're in one, but need to have separate if they're two separate freestanding entities on it. Generally, most people buy multiple pieces of commercial real estate under one LLC. That's the most common thing. If someone comes and says, Hunt, I really am cautious about this. I really want to add a couple extra layers of protection then go ahead and set up another LLC. For the real estate side, it's not the end of the world. And if set up correctly, really shouldn't cost you that much more money other than the one-time setup. So let's talk about this new entity that we're going to set up. So we're buying this shop. I already have an existing shop. I have two choices again. 
I can use my existing entity and buy the assets with my existing entity, or I can create a new entity. Now, some of the benefits of using the existing entity is it's a lot quicker, right? I already have a federal ID number. I already have my tax withholding number. I already have a QuickBooks file set up. Um, I already file a tax return. I can all file it on one combined tax return. There's a lot of synergy by having this owned under one corporation. Um, we also would allow us to swap employees back and forth. We have one person paying it, so it doesn't matter if it's in location A or location B, the employees can kind of move freely between them. On the other hand, if we have separate entities of that, that means that we're going to have separate federal ID numbers and the employees would actually get two W-2s if they were going to go back and forth between locations. If you're going to use your existing entity, you can set that up in QuickBooks and call that multiple classes. This is how most of our shops do it, is all under one entity in classed financials. Essentially, what those class financials will allow you to look at is location one, location two. We can look at those as two separate entities, analyze the profitability, analyze the gross profit, and then also allows us to look at the combined location of what the entire enterprise is doing. This is probably my preference on it because you still have the personal legal protection aspect of it. There's a lot of synergy to be had by having them all owned under one thing. Um, and it makes these a little bit simpler where at times it can get more complicated the more and more entities that you set up. The benefit of having a completely separate LLC or completely separate corporation is that you're going to get better legal protection. How much extra legal protection? Well, it depends on how arm's length and how separate you run these businesses. If you set up a, a separate LLC to own your new location and you're still swapping work back and forth, you're still swapping employees back and forth, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of legal protection because if you were to get sued, they're going to look at this and they're going to say, all right, these are technically two separate LLCs, but you're operating this as one big conglomerate. Nice try. You're going to both be named in the suit. Again, just like the rental real estate side of things, if you're gung-ho and you really, really want to be cautious about risk, then set up multiple LLCs, a separate one for any new ones that you buy. For the most part, though, we see them owned under one real estate, or I'm sorry, owned under one LLC for the operating entity. The last option that I'm going to touch on, I'm not going to really get into it too much, but it gets somewhat complicated, is a mixture of two of these. And so there's a strategy where the most common way to do this is called qualified subsidiaries of S corporations, where you essentially have one parent company that owns multiple LLCs underneath it. And so each of the locations would be a separate LLC owned under the parent company. It would look exactly the same like as if you were using all one entity, but actually each of the locations would have a separate LLC on it. It's a nice little go-between for people that want an added level of it, but want to save some money on additional financial statements and additional tax returns. The biggest thing that I will say here is there's no right or wrong answer to this because everyone's going to operate these deals a little bit differently. What I would recommend is talk to your lawyer, talk to your accountant, and get their opinion on it based on what you're going to be doing in these shops. Generally, the lawyers are going to go and want to create a lot of assets, which by nature, they're a little bit more risk averse, and that's their nature of their business. They need to be cautious, and they're going to advise you of some worst case scenarios of it. Now, my job as an accountant is to kind of read between the lines and kind of give you a little bit more practical side of it, of what it really looks like and what other people are doing. 
Um, you know, and the answer usually ends up somewhere in the middle of, hey, you know what? We're still minding our risk here, but not creating a lot of extra expense and a lot of extra burden. So now that we finance this deal and now that we have our new entity or we have our new structure set up, how do we allocate this uh, purchase? So if you have a real estate purchase, that's going to be the first thing that we pull out. So let's say we have a $1.2 million deal. The real estate is 700000 of that. So I'm going to pull that 700000 out and say, all right, perfect. That's going to be allocated to my real estate. Real estate gets depreciated over 39 years. It's a long time. So generally, you don't want to go super high on the real estate, but you also don't want to go too low because that's losing a lot of your collateral. Generally, what people do for their real estate is they just go off the appraisal. Whatever the bank appraises is that we're going to call that real estate. Now, if the business is not super profitable and for whatever reason, sometimes you can play around with that allocation if the uh, real estate appraisal comes in higher than what you guys expect. So let's say that same deal, we have $1.2 million, $700,000 is in real estate. Now we have $500,000 that we need to allocate for the business. First thing that we're going to look for is inventory, right? If there's inventory included in that number, I'm going to pull that out, right? So let's say that for my deal, I got $20,000 of inventory. Perfect. Now I have $480,000 that I need to allocate. We really have two choices of how the remainder is allocated. That's going to be assets and that's going to be goodwill. Essentially, goodwill is everything that we're paying over and above the fair value of the assets that we're buying. And so that $480,000 deal I'm going to go down through and I'm going to look at the shop and I'm going to come up with what I think is a fair value for the equipment. This is not historical cost. This is fair value for the equipment. Essentially, what do I think that I could sell? What do you think I could make on this if I was to have a yard sale and sell all of this equipment on the open market? Now, from a buyer's perspective, I want that equipment to come in higher. I want to allocate more of my purchase price of the equipment. The reason I say that is because equipment we can write off in the first year entirely if we want to or depreciate up to a maximum of seven years. So best case scenario, we can actually write it all off the first year if we need to. Worst case, we're getting the full deduction over seven years. Now, don't go crazy on this, right? If you think that the fair value of the equipment is $125,000, I'm not telling you to come in at $225,000 or anything like that. We want something that's fair for both parties, but... Obviously, I'm going to err on the side that's going to benefit me. So if you're debating whether the equipment is worth 125 or 150 and you're the buyer, then I'm going to go for the 150. I can always negotiate down. Generally, in these situations, though, if you come up with an asset allocation, the other party almost always takes it. Most people just don't understand the importance of asset allocation on it. So if you go with something that's pretty reasonable, but still working in your favor, they're most likely going to take it. So now that we have $150,000 allocated to the equipment, we have $330,000 left on this deal. That's all going to be goodwill. Goodwill is amortized over 15 years. Amortized is very similar to depreciation. Essentially, we take that you know, remainder, divide it by 15, and we get one fifteenth deduction for the next 15 years for the goodwill. Like I mentioned before, goodwill is what we're willing to pay over and above the liquidation cost of the assets, right? So that's their reputation. That's their website. That's their customer list. That's their branding. That's their workforce. That's everything that you can't touch, but provides value and is why you're buying the business. 
Some people also do non-competes as well. Non-compete from a buyer's perspective is treated exactly the same as goodwill. So that's up to them how they want to allocate it. You don't really care on that. The big thing here though is on the asset allocation is try and come out with it first. But if we're buying here, we want to allocate more and more of this on assets because it allows us to get a quicker tax deduction uh, versus goodwill, which we're going to have to amortize over 39 years. And on the real estate side, probably can't get too cute on that or get too carried away on it because all of that's probably going to be locked in by the appraisal and again, depreciate over 39 years. Once you figure that out, you're in business. You have the allocation. You have your entity set up. You've got this thing financed. Now you're taking a leap of faith and you're opening the next location, right? Now the fun really begins. But, you know, we just spent three weeks going over this. You can see how much work is involved in this. The more work that you do up front on this, guys, the more work that you do in analyzing the deal and finding these deals in structuring these deals is going to make your time in this new location a lot more, uh, a lot easier, a lot less stressful. If you don't do this back work, you're going to start finding surprises after you open the doors. Some of these things you have one shot at it. Hey, I did a stock sale because I'd even think about it. Now I'm doing my taxes and I just figured out that I'm getting no deductions on this stuff. So make sure you're asking questions. Make sure that you're talking to your coaches, your accountants, your lawyers, your friends. Get as much advice as you can possibly get because a lot of these different things that we talked about over the last couple of weeks, you get one shot at and you want to make sure that you do it right the first time. I hope this was informative for you, whether you're thinking of buying or selling a shop. And I hope that this kind of gave you all different ways to look at this deal from start to finish. Like I always ask, if you think that this could be helpful for a friend, colleague, or someone else, please feel free to share this with them. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a future episode, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. There's a link for that email in the show notes. So I want to say thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Hope you enjoyed the crash course on going multi-location here. Everyone stay safe, and I will talk to you soon. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.